Welcome to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. This is a platform for the extraordinary women leading the regenerative agricultural movement and the transformation of our societies around the world. They are on the ground, creating critical shifts in seemingly intractable and highly unsustainable systems, and they have been doing so for a long time. I'm Aurora Flynn, creator of the show. In this series, we look to explore beyond the soil, to the underlying theme of transformation itself across size, scale, multiple dimensions, from that very internal landscape of human consciousness to the outer manifestation in the world around us, be it in the form of agricultural management practices, tools, and techniques, to culture, economics, policy, as well as the built environment. This series is a joint venture with Soil for Climate and my own organization, the Outer Borders Agency, where we work to help transform the human social infrastructure and the built environment to create truly resilient and regenerative societies. These recordings originally aired as interactive live stream interviews on social media. They were held during the initial months of the U.S. COVID lockdown, and due to limited facilities, we sometimes had to get creative with our locations and dealt with the occasional technical issue. Please enjoy these incredible women. You're listening to the Women of Regenerative Ag podcast. My guest today is Dr. Cynthia Daly, a professor at the College of Agriculture at California State University, Chico. She serves as the Rollins Endowed Professor for Environmental Literacy and the director of the Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems. Cindy is originally from Illinois, where her family has been actively engaged in the farming profession for more than four generations. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Illinois, her doctorate at the University of California, Davis. She joined the CSU Chico California of Agriculture faculty in 1997 and later founded the Organic Dairy Education Research Program in 2006. Seeing the need to grow the ecological farming movement, Daly went on to co-create the Regenerative Agriculture Initiative in 2016 and guided the program to center status in May of 2019. The new Center for Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems is a consortium of interdisciplinary faculty and farmers who recognize the ecological benefits of regenerative farming practices, including water conservation, soil fertility, and carbon sequestration. The Center's guiding principle is that agriculture, when done regeneratively, can be the solution to soil degradation and climate change. Cindy, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm excited to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Absolutely. Oil for Climate. You guys are doing great work. Thank you. Um, I wanted to actually ask you a little bit about the the four generations of your family that you're t- speaking about in farming practices. What areas was that including? Can you tell us a bit about that? Um, our, it's a conventional farming system. Um, it's uh, corn, soybeans, hay, cattle. Um, there was a time when I was growing up when it was much more diversified, um, as were all farms in the Midwest, much more diversified. Um, and we had hogs and chickens and, and that type of thing. But it, it's evolved, as, as all of production ag has, in, into more of a monocropping type um, system. So that's, uh, that's kind of where it is um, currently. Um, my sister and brother are both actively engaged in farming as their, their primary um, source of income. 
And uh, my brother, um, interestingly enough, has transitioned one of the three farms um, into an organic system. So that's now about four to five years kind of into the, the process. So he's, he's on that learning curve. I'm very, very proud of him because, you know, it's a very conventional, very conservative area. And mm -hmm. you don't want to be the talk of the coffee shop, not, not in that part of the world. You know, it really uh, it determines whether or not you're going to get the leases that you really want in order to, you know, to have the size uh, that you need to be to be viable. Yeah. So this is, I'm sorry, say again? I just said my hat is off to him for, you know, being able to, you know, to sustain that social pressure. Yeah. It's kind of moving into a more of a regenerative type model. Absolutely. Amber Smith, who's the director of um, Women in Ranching, came on. And this is one of the primary roles that that group is f forming, really, is uh, and serving is the sort of the social impingement that comes from really shifting away from not just agricultural practices, but a cultural narrative around how to tend to landscape. Um, and it's, I think people underestimate the power of, of what yeah, of what that is and what that generating force is and the destructiveness of it, how much it can actually impede you from doing what you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it absolutely, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's hard enough just relearning, you know, a new bi biological type system when you've been cultured and raised in more of a geochemical kind of an approach. So, you know, it's a complete paradigm shift in what you know, but it's also a behavioral change. And, and that social impact, like you had said, is really important. Um, and that's why I think any of these any of these transition programs must include, you know, the social uh, components, uh, the support. You need a farmer-to-farmer -farmer network to provide that kind of, uh, of peer support that they need in order that they can continue to, to learn because there'll be failures and there'll be, you know, plenty of times and, uh, where, where you, you really question whether or not you're going down the right path and you need that social support, that help um, in order to kind of keep moving through, you know, the downturns so that you can really learn to enjoy, you know, the, the, that change in farming. So it's really interesting. Enjoy is a really key word there. Like, I think there's a, you know, there's a propensity to really shut down. Um, it's so funny. We tell people that life is, you're going to have failures. It's how you grow. And then we go, but you have to know what you're doing. You always have to know what you're doing. You can't get it wrong. Please don't show the world that you don't know what you're doing because then it calls into question, you know, how, how good are you and, you know, how valued are you? And it's a really, that social pressure is a very real threat to the nervous system to be, to feel like people are, are, not understanding or disrespecting or you know turning away because you're moving outside of an identity that no longer fits what makes them feel comfortable right um, yeah, absolutely yeah there's there's that's there's a whole psychosocial uh component to to this transitioning into this new paradigm that we really need to get on that we really need to provide more support to because it's a critical piece it's, yeah it could it could be the difference between being able to make this happen and not that was why I ended up doing the training programs I did and the applied research and the theoretical um, was to move that psychosocial fabric. And that, that actually is the research that, uh, you know, even the UNESCO and uh, the director general of UNESCO, Irina Bokova, um, brought up in, I think it was 2012, she said that unless, you know, culture was at the heart of a sustainability agenda, it wasn't going to take place in that 
culture is the underlying fabric for everything else on top. And I looked at what was subculture, right? Because I was going culture, yes, as a driver, but what kind of culture? There's a lot of cultures out there. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went into that psychosocial realm of what does that need to be to be integral? I always, you know, I ended up having to teach it to students like it's a pizza crust, right? And everything else are, are the toppings, the renewable energy we choose to do, the agricultural practices, we, the electric cars. These are all different toppings we can put. But unless you have that really firm, robust, um, highly connected, interdependent awareness, um, ability to, uh, to have flexible cognitive processes, like there's a host of things you need um, to be a truly resilient community and a resilient human being. And how do we create that, that sense of belonging? Um, so we know this with research. So it's right there in our faces. And yet it's one of the last things we usually want to tend because the soil microbe, the microbiome is so incredibly juicy and fascinating. Um, and we do, we are holistic though. We need all of it completely. Um, so we already have people asking if they want to know about specific goals for the center. So let's dive right into the Center for uh, Regenerative Agriculture and Resilient Systems, how it began and the goals, uh, the phases I know you were speaking about with me that you want to move into with it. Right, right. Well, um, you mentioned uh, the, the overall you know, approach, how it came about, how it happened you know, in the introduction. So I won't necessarily reiterate that, but you know, there's just this tremendous need. Um, maybe just look at where we are today. And, you know, we don't seem to be moving the needle on sustainable agriculture in the direction that we need to go. And we certainly don't want to sustain a degraded system. And we do need to be thinking more regeneratively. And, you know, all hands on deck. Uh, we don't have an awful lot of time. Um, and, and we feel like this is our part. This is what we can do. We can, we can provide the model, you know, for other universities and campuses, um, you know, throughout the country and around the globe to kind of move down this same path. We, we, we really need to provide, you know, this kind of instruction, this kind of uh, research, this, this, you know, this is a, in a critical part of trying to address climate change. Agriculture as is, is a net emitter. So we are part of the problem and that has to stop. Um, we have to stop the emissions. And the great news in this is that we are part of the solution, or could be, you know, if, if we could really firmly embrace this transition into regenerative agriculture. And that's what the center is all about. Um, our platform has always been about uh, trying to provide support to farmers and ranchers to embrace this new paradigm. So um, we've invested pretty heavily initially into our, our applied research program, which in many respects is in partnership with many of our mentor farmers. Um, if you go to our website, you can see several of them. We've got some incredibly, you know, bright, innovative farmers that are part of our research program. And on their farms, you know, they're the ones with skin in the game. They're experimenting with some of these new methods and um, approaches uh, to food and fiber production. So that's, uh, we've got 10 active projects going on uh, currently. We've taken on six new graduate students in our interdisciplinary masters that is, um, it's with an emphasis in regenerative agriculture. Many of these are local farmers that wanted to come back for the additional education and the support in order to do uh, research programs, uh, research projects on their own farms. Um, Fantastic. 
Raquel Massa is a classic example. She's a wonderful pioneer um, who is doing some work in, in regenerative almond production. So she's got it all going on, cover crops, compost, and animal grazing. So it's pretty phenomenal, the project there. We're just our first year into that, that particular study. Fantastic. But you did mention phases. And so now that we've got the applied research program um, underway together with some partners, um, we've taken on uh, Tim LaSalle and David Johnson as adjunct professors. They help us um, you know, leverage um, their, their expertise in, in helping us develop um, our program. So we are heavily invested in David's research on BEAM, the Biologically Enhanced Ag Management Systems. And so we're looking at that biological approach um, you know, to crop production in corn and cotton and rangeland. Um, we've got it also in veg, uh, vegetables. So that's a big part of that project because of the opportunity to, to optimize, maximize carbon sequestration while we're producing food. Um, so that's the beauty of it, trying to reestablish that soil microbiome. And David's inoculum appears to be, um, you know, that solution. It's, it's an opportunity to re-inoculate some pretty degraded soils and get that soil microbiome, um, you know, to, to, to start reinvigorating, um, you know, that system. So that's kind of an exciting piece. Um, the next step for us is really to move into uh, course development. So we're working on a professional course series that is designed not only to support our own program within the College of Agriculture, but we want to be able to make it online so that we can also support other um, universities that are starting to stick their toe into this arena. We think that's pretty exciting. Um, Southern Cross in Australia already has a, um, a degree program. Um, we want to do some cost share with them and others. Um, Understanding Ag is another partner in our educational program development, eco-agriculture, John Kemp, he's also very engaged in this um, course development arena in regenerative agriculture. So we're trying to build as many partnerships as we can, uh, particularly with farmers and the farming community. Uh, we know that you know, there's some amazing teachers out there that are actively engaged in farming that can really communicate that, um, you know, that theory and the practice in a, in a much better way than a PhD ever could. So we're um, very supportive of that and, and recognize that and want to, you know, use it <laughs> to um, the, the best end possible. So education is next. We want to do an online certificate program, an online master's. So all of those things are really cooking uh, together with our farmer to farmer network platform. Um, I think John has got um, or will have some pretty exciting um, announcements coming up. He's developing a platform for farmers that we're going to help beta test and support um, in that process. So lots of great things going on. We need to band together. We need to work together and, uh, and leverage each other and try to get this, this whole movement off the ground. Mm. Cindy, it's really uh, extraordinary to hear. I think it's also the, the perspective and paradigm I find most refreshing about the center and also about you and about the sort of the regenerative ag community. Um, there seems to be, you know, for, you know, maybe a variety of reasons, whether it's, you know, uh, epistemology or methodology, I'm not entirely clear, but academia does seem to be a bit behind the regenerative ag movement. Um, and certainly not propelling it the way one would hope and think, especially when we have national and international organizations that are still kind of, well, in the old paradigm. And I know we throw that word around a lot, paradigm. 
Um, and it's one of those, probably those learning curves as you start opening up to a new world, you're like, oh, that was the old paradigm. And it takes a while, you know, to get there. But why, why is this? I mean, you have this automatic, what seemingly is an automatic orientation that this is farmer driven, rancher driven. They need to be the speakers um, and academia seems to be behind it. Do you have sort of inklings as to why and what has been your experience being sort of that bridge in academia? So why, why is academia behind? Um, yes. Well, you know, it's made up of people and it's made up <laughs> of egos and it's made up of, uh, and, and that's the honest to God truth. And, and anybody who's been involved in academia, you know, like me for the last you know, 30 years understands that better than most. And so if you can pull ego out of it and if you could just look at what needs to be done and then try to, you know, develop that holistic context, you know, anything that we do needs to be going down this path of trying to support and elevate regenerative agriculture in the industry and, you know, on our campuses. Um, because that's that's part of the solution. Otherwise, you're just a distraction. You know, you're just a distraction and you're consuming oxygen that probably needs to go to somebody <laughs> going down the right path. Um, you know, I, I guess I've just kind of lost patience for that. And um, but but you know, that's not to say that you know we we need to we need to provide that kind of support. And, and I think there's a lot of folks that are kind of coming around. We have to understand that while we want farmers to, to jump on this learning curve and go through this transition into, campuses have to do the same thing. All of these academic programs have to do the same thing. I mean, I can see that with you know, some of our own faculty. They're all trying to grapple with this and wondering, you know, well, is this just the latest buzzword or, you know, is there any substance? Well, there clearly is substance, you know, to, to this. And, you know, the science is there. Um, I don't, and, and you call it whatever you want. If you, you know, if you, you feel more comfortable with sustainable agriculture, then call it that. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have to regenerate these soils. We, we have to start thinking about moving away from, you know, some of these destructive type production practices. So how is it that we're going to, you know, partner and make that happen? So I guess the, that's a long answer. Um, we, we, we have to get campuses and faculty to start on this paradigm shift of their own. They, and oftentimes if they're, they could be married to a whole history of publications that, you know, kind of support this old geochemical kind of an approach. And so they're going to want to defend a lifetime career that's been invested in that millions of dollars. Um, so it is hard for people to make that transition. And there's some really wonderful, brilliant people. Um, and what we need to do is help them make that mind shift um, in, into this, this new paradigm. You, you should think that the academia, the universities should be on the cutting, bleeding edge and welcome new ideas. Uh, but that is so not how that comes together on campuses. It just isn't. Um, uh, there's as much bloodshed there on some of these issues as ever. Um, and in many respects, you know, some of these programs are so heavily subsidized um, by, um, you know, outside entities that, you know, want to continue down this business model of, of, you know, this geochemical kind of business model. Um, so there, there are those kinds of pressures. And if you get that kind of pressure, that's real pressure because that can actually come from the top um, of your administrative uh, food chain. 
And you never want to get behind that eight ball uh, because that's just a lose-lose situation. I've seen many of my colleagues get into that kind of a, a situation and it's ugly. Um, it's a career uh, killer yeah. um, in many respects. And so there's a lot of issues there um, that could probably explain, you know, why some of the universities and campuses tend to be a little slow uh, to, to adapt. It's, it's a phenomenal conundrum, the image you just painted, because you would really hope that academia was the bleeding edge, was that incredible frontier of ideas and thought and, and you know, innovation and ingenuity. Um, and the sidelining effect of, of being what, you know, I, non-affectionately was called defiant at university in my graduate department. Um, when you bring in a, a, a new perspective, a new paradigm, a new way of looking at the world, and you're committed to it. Um, it's amazing how much that rattles the identities around you. And I think you just brought up some of those threads that you can't see when you're in academia initially, and then you follow it and you understand why there's such a rigidity to the constructs they're so committed to that make no sense in some respects. Um, and I think this leads to sort of this, you know, disillusioned effect for the public when they want to both respect academia and they get very concerned that, you know, they themselves haven't been trained to even pull apart, let's say, a peer-reviewed paper to understand incentives or why it may be leaning the way it is or why the scientific method may be limited in its approach and its ability to even show interconnecting facets um, of what is a truly holistic perspective we need to bring to the world. Um, academia just isn't um, pliable the way farmers and ranchers are willing to be these mavericks um, and go with their intuition. Right, yeah, yeah, there, we've got a big ship to, you know, to shift and there's a food chain, there's a, a hierarchy, um, you know, that, that you have to you know, be cognizant of. And, and I am truly blessed because I have a president and a provost who are all about this. They completely get it, they see it. And, you know, and, and they're, they have so many battles, they're waging so <laughs> you know, with COVID and, and the situations that are happening there, the wildfires, I mean, our campus had to deal with the biggest wildfire, you know, with the campfire that just, yeah. um, and, and we're still dealing with that, you know, the ramifications and the, the fallout and the recovery issues and the soil erosion that, that was a significant impact uh, on us. So, um, you know, with all of those things going on, um, my president and my provost are still exceptionally supportive of what we've been able to accomplish in the center, the direction that we're going, and, um, and together with uh, a cadre of, of the deans have got my back. And, and if I didn't have that, I couldn't accomplish near um, the amount of things that we've done. And, and you know, our, our future um, is, is very bright because, um, you know, we, we just, you know, time and resources. Um, with time and resources, I think it's pretty unlimited what we'd be able to accomplish. You know, um, our next uh, big push is going to be this educational outreach to make sure that we can put this um, information out into the world in a way that's credible, that's science-backed, and very understandable, um, very relatable. Um, and, that, that, and, and that's why we have farmers on our team, because they get that. They, um, and that's, they really understand how this information needs to be science-based, but also very practical, very usable. So it's interesting. I mean, you, part of the, it's, I constantly think of sort of tropes that we get stuck in and sort of these, these uh, sort of distortions that get in the way. And one of them is the idea of an expert. 
um, and who constitutes that. And I think that was a pursuit for me. I think that start understanding that blockage between communities I was working with on the ground, ranchers or people possessing what, you know, academia calls traditional ecological knowledge, which is really indigenous knowledge and wisdom in mm -hmm. application. And some land stewards absolutely embody those, um, that paradigm. Um, but then understanding there was a disconnect between various experts and various fields that ultimately meant it couldn't be tended from those paradigms or weren't being heard. So getting ranchers, let's say, and this is policy, you know, issues into policy as well, getting those ranchers to sack, to speak for themselves in a way they would be heard in, you know, understanding that a lot of them felt like they wouldn't be heard for their, for their expressions or for their position, simply a farmer, simply a rancher, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That 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 is another reason, probably why, you know, the university systems as a whole are a little bit behind. It's because they do believe, because of the initials behind their name, that they do need to be the expert. But the fact of the matter is, is that the farmers and ranchers are leading this initiative. And, you know, they're doing things that work, that make sense. You know, they're they're moving the needle on on regenerative agriculture. And I think the universities, the the researchers, need to take their lead and and study their systems they're providing us with the uh, an, an incredible platform um, you know to to do research in a meaningful way where we can contrast systems you know this is a 20-year regenerative orchard and we're going to contrast that and you know right next door to a, a heavy input kind of a more of a traditional approach and then let's really look and contrast these systems and the cool thing is that you don't have to create it. It's already been there. I mean, and, and it's already managed for you because these farmers are already doing their thing. And, and, you know, in many, John Lundgren does, works that way. I know Jonathan White, there's David Johnson. There are several scientists that are out there currently, um, you know, capitalizing um, on, on that approach and are making big progress there to try and backfill the science. Mm -hmm. Guys like Gabe Brown, he knows his system's working. It's profitable. It's he's making car. You know, his his goal isn't to make carbon. His goal is to make money, and he's growing carbon in that process. So let's figure out exactly what's going on in that system. <clears throat> Chris Nichols came in there and discovered glomulin and understood that you know it was the fungal species that were responsible for building that soil structure in a way that made Gabe more profitable. So you know that's the approach that we need to be taking. What we don't want to do is not say you know we don't want to tell producers oh you can't do that because we really don't have the science to support x y and z. Right. Because it, it's not there. And, and <laughs> If you continue to kind of rely on reductionist science, I think we're dead in the water. Um, we, we need to reevaluate how we do research. We need yeah. to approach this. And, and we need that creativity. Um, we need those, um, you know, big thinkers um, that in the, in the scientific arena uh, to embrace that model and, and to move this forward. Um, we even created a new journal that, you know, was designed, uh, you know, to, to provide support for, for those researchers that really want to go down this path of, of, of systems-based research. So that's um, what that goal is, is to provide that platform. So peer review, peer review it, you know, set up the experimental design such a way that you can collect viable data. Mm -hmm. um, and let's, let's, uh, yeah, kind of run it through this journal. It'll be peer reviewed um, among folks that really understand systems-based research. So mm -hmm. that's the goal for that. 
Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's funny. We're getting a lot of comments. I'm bringing up somebody's bringing up the Christine Jones. I need to get this out of the way so I can see what's happening here. Um, but I do want to just take a second and really acknowledge that you know Chico was a uh, you know CSU Chico. I visited in 2015 for grazing for change that Abby and Spencer Smith from the Jefferson Center of Holistic Management. Um, put together there and it was a game changer in my life because you all were so outside of the paradigm that I had been experiencing both in academia but also with conservancies and nonprofits aiming at land stewardship. And I think there was Gabe Brown that day, there was, I met you, um, of course, Abby and Spence, um, you had Dr. Christine Jones. I mean, it was this whole allotment of phenomenal human beings interconnecting different areas of expertise for a whole new paradigm of thought within the realm of academia as well. And it was really astonishing uh, and refreshing to see um, that kind of thought process happening. Um, and I did not find that when I went to academia. It was, I was utterly um, frustrated and miserable in many respects. Um, <laughs> so, it's so it was so yeah it was so it's great to get that that kind of feedback Rora, because you know frankly you know i get hammered a lot by you know some of the more conventional thinking um in academia because you know a lot of the stuff that you know gabe was talking about or christine was talking about you know doesn't have i mean it, it, there's a lot of science there but you have to string it together and you know, that that that's kind of an important piece so we do get beat up a little bit for kind of bringing that bleeding edge kind of information forward but I think that's the only way in which we're going to make any progress here is you got to be willing to take that kind of heat and, and you just know, pushing forward. It's really uh, I think this is another I mean this is such an area to come into because it it speaks to what you're seeing with farmers and ranchers culturally get kind of hit with when they start edging out you see it in academia and the propensity in culture and people in general to want to be very um, very resistant very resistant to a new paradigm of thought is kind of extraordinary how much our identities and egos are really trapped in wanting to be right in wanting to be certain and wanting to be um, known for that certainty um, it's it's kind of alarming and i think i'm still coming out of a few years of feeling really bludgeoned from kind of pushing on having an incredible paradigm shifting community on one side of my life and then the other side that was just hitting the surface all the time being called defiant or crazy or you know and now i'm being validated and being taken into other academics that are you know are moving outside the system but um i really didn't know what to do once i got out of academia because it was such a bludgeonary sort of experience of limitation <laughs> so it's just like wow recovery is what you're telling me you're um, no it, there was <laughs> a bit of PTSD. I will say I had an amazing mentor who would look at me and she, you know, she was also, and I don't want to say this is gender specific. I think this is a, is a way the culture functions, to be, you know, to be dominant in that sense. But I think there is something that as a woman, you know, you're more likely to be called defiant or, you know, uh, you know, please get into place uh, rather than the maverick uh, that I found a lot of my colleagues would be called. It was just a really exhausting process. And I was, you know, I constantly got that from female faculty as well, where they were just like, you're opinionated, you have vision, you're going to get yourself in trouble if you don't edit and hold back. Um, mm -hmm. And you will be sidelined. And I was. And it was, uh, it's, that's a whole nother can of worms to pull apart, but I think it's really part of the indoctrination of the culture is to keep people small and quiet. That, yeah. that is truly the case. And you do need to know when to, you know, what battles to pick and uh, kind of, yeah, set the stage. And yeah, there's a lot of strategy. It's a chess game in many respects to try and survive in academia.
frankly. But um, I agree. I think that the, the whole paradigm shift in, in that, um, that the farmers are experiencing, you know, academia also has those same kind of uh, social pressures. The social psychological component of this is just a, it's a, it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. It really does. Um, I know that um, that does hold back, you know, it, it, good scientists are holding back because they are in fear of, of being admonished, for, in fear of being criticized publicly, not only for their work, but their thoughts, their words, their opinions, you know, and the campuses are supposed to be a free thinking um, uh, platform for sharing new ideas and looking at these new paradigms and, you know, trying on these thoughts and these ideas. And that, that's what we've done when, you know, we bring a Christine Jones to campus. I mean, that is one brilliant woman. You can't, you know, and, and she gets it. Um, and, and frankly, there's, she does bring the science. Um, Christine has a very unique ability of being able to connect the dots in the research to kind of explain phenomenon that she is seeing in these really uh, phenomenal farmers that are moving forward in regenerative agriculture. So um, um, we need more Christine Jones. Yeah. She had to leave the university, by the way, because she that the heat was um, just way more than you know she could manage, and a lot of it depends, you know, on on who your higher ups are. Um, some tend to be more supportive of that, some are not, and and uh, she got in trouble and uh, and left, and is doing quite well, um, even though she's not affiliated um, with the university campus. I'm just really pleased that she's not so bitter that she's not willing to work with people like us, to me and uh, and my colleagues. So. Um, anyway, you know, no, you're watching, God love you. No, absolutely. I had no idea. I completely missed that chapter with her. Uh, she's a complete inspiration, in, in, especially with her narrative, the whole way she connects, like you said, the way she connects everything. She's extraordinary. She was a game changer for me and her thoughts. Um, I feel the same way. She's been a game changer for myself as well. Wow. That's really stunning. Horrifying mm -hmm. in some respects. Um, it, uh, you know, in some respects, I think, and I really don't like this to be true, but I think there's a certain amount of changing of the guard that has to happen over time in order for this. But again, it comes back to being rancher and farmer led to some respect. And that's when I don't have a lot. I mean, I have a hope your, your wonderful, you know, center popped up right as I was looking at academia a year after I'd gone where to go to for higher education. But I found a lot of the curriculums I was looking at to be really limiting, really specific, really hyper-focused. And I didn't understand the reductionistic view, uh, why that was necessary and why that was the end all and be all and the solution to our problems when there was such a clear interconnection happening. So Scott, Sebastian Scott says she's a hero. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and and it, it, unfortunately, you know, that whole reductionist approach, Aurora, is really leading us down the wrong path. I mean, it has really set the stage for some really awful policy. We know research sets policy. So, you know, we need to change the, the way in which we do science uh, so that we can, you know, feed the politicians better data. Uh, because we're not there yet. I mean, there's an awful lot of work that needs to be done um, in, in those arenas. And I, I know the Richard Teague, Peter Bick, David Johnson, they, they've got a very large study going on there in the Midwest that I think is going to be a huge game changer, you know, for wildland, um, rangeland management systems that I hope Forest Service and BLM and other agencies are going to be uh, very aware of. We want to be able to take that kind of data and bring it into our technical service provider training um, that 
you know, um, will help us train uh, folks in NRCS and the RCDs and, and USDA and places like that. I, I think there's no real mechanism to get this to them to help them understand it so that they can, you know, provide the kind of policy and get the funding, you know, into the hands of the people that need it. So there, there's big issues that we're trying to deal with in that, in that arena. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, sometimes I want to help the public understand where they can mobilize and support and why this you know, people get, they see soil as this panacea and they're like, oh my goodness, why can't we just, you know, absolutely switch everybody to these regenerative practices and what they right. don't realize is that there is hurdle after hurdle after hurdle um, from a collective narrative behind what agriculture is to, um, to even policy shifts, you know, you get a really, like you're saying, you get in Sonoma County, we have a, I think every building over 40 feet now has to have solar panels. Well, this brings us into a very real realm of social justice. And in fact, a lot of these issues, I wanted to ask you about that is sort of where does social justice fit within the regenerative ag movement? Because I feel like there's some hurdles there we're not really looking at, but they're intrinsic to that shift being made. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 I think that that's, you know, it is, it's, it's a big picture thing, but social justice for absolute, you know, not, not only from the, you know, climate change perspective, when you think about the populations who are going to be most hurt by climate change, you know, it's, it's the poor people, um, it's indigenous, it, it's folks like that that are really suffering, um, you know, from these big shifts in weather patterns and heat and so on. Um, and, and, you know, they don't have the resources uh, to deal with it. And so, you know, we're creating the problem and they're having to deal with it and uh, are the most vulnerable. So regenerative ag will eventually address that. But then there's also the social justice that occurs on farm. When you think about the number of farmers who have been displaced because of the geochemical approach to get big or get out, I mean, I think that's criminal of what has happened in our rural landscapes. If you, you know, it's ghost towns in the little tiny town that I grew up in in Sublette, Illinois, used to be a thriving little town, you know, and we could, we could ride our horses into town and, 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 and go hang out with the friends. And, um, and there was a post office and a grocery store and the grain elevator. It, it was pretty, and now we have three bars. And I think that basically tells you what's going on in these small little landscapes. I mean, a few churches survive and a few um, bars, and that's about it. The rest of the economy dissipates because we have completely displaced our farms, farmers uh, from, from the land in this pursuit of trying to, you know, create cheap food. Mm. Um, that, and this regenerative ag movement is really about regenerating those rural communities and uh, keeping farmers on the land, making them and their properties, their, their land more resilient, um, more economically sustainable. Um, you know, look what Will Harris has done in, in that corner of, of his world. I mean, he didn't wait, um, you know, and now he's a going thriving um, business entity that brings jobs into a very low income arena. And he is reinvigorating that entire community. You know, that is what we need to do throughout the entire country and clearly around the globe. But, you know, let's face it, in the US, we have got a ton of work to do. We've got a ton of work to do. Just drive up and down I-5 and you can see how much work we have to do. It's all heavy, heavy tillage monocrop, heavy tillage monocrop. And uh, if we're really gonna make change, if we're really gonna be the solution to climate change, 
we have to really address all of that. We need to get to those farmers. So let, let's figure out a plan and a strategy to get to those farmers and um, let's make some, make some difference. Let's move the needle. <laughs> <laughs> so Cindy, one of the, you know, what are some of these, these, you know, we've been talking about different hurdles that farmers and ranchers are up against, but we're also talking about academia, these different systems. Um, financially, what are we talking about? Like, why isn't there that transition when, you know, you have the Gabe Browns going, it's just common sense. And um, I was thinking last night, actually, a friend was talking, we were talking about, you know, tending our forests appropriately. Um, and sort of the financial input one actually needs to have as a landowner, which is it's starting to sound like a weird concept to me. If you are owning land, you need to be stewarding it in a regenerative, harmonizing capacity um, that people often don't have finances for, or they don't have the awareness and knowledge too. So once the awareness and knowledge is on board, is there a financial limitation and block to farmers taking out the inputs that they are, you know, sort of almost the land is addicted to at this point and shifting to regenerative practices? Or is this just, you know? Well, I think that there is a financial thing. There's a risk. You know, if I change my production practice, it's just barely working now, but I am making a profit. And so I don't really want to rock the boat. And so there's that kind of a thing um, and a knowledge thing. So that they're going to have to, you have to forgive me. My dogs are going to go, my dog alarm is going to go off here in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize for the noise in the background. No, no, no. We love real life. That's what we want. <laughs> oh, hey, Lily. Come here, baby. It's okay. I just want you to know my four-legged's getting ready to join. So don't you dare. Oh, you're going to hear my dogs. And so pretty soon we're just going to have this great big symphony, this dog symphony that's going to be going off. But Taxi anyway, <laughs> um, I do think that there are, you know, several... Uh, roadblocks, not not insurmountable, but you know, and you know, th that we need to consider um, when we're we're trying to help farmers shift. One, you know, they they need resources. They need to have confidence that what they're going to be doing is going to work, and so that's why we need these effective demonstrations. So we need to identify those farms and make them, you know, kind of our, our demonstration. This is where we're going to bring farmers, and that this is where they're going to learn from another farmer who's been there, done that has the credibility and can articulate the message. You know, that's, that's, I think, an important piece of this transition. And also helping that farmer with boots on the ground. And so that's why we're doing more technical service provider training. We really want to get that, that program funded so that we can help with more boots on the ground. Um, I also want to, you know, figure out how we, you know, support and subsidize our mentor farmers so they can also provide the kind of support that they need, the peer-to-peer -peer support. So, I'll, you know, take a picture, oh gosh, I've got this issue, what's going on here, and send it out to a whole bunch of uh, farmers, women, men, um, and just say, what's going on here? And instantaneously get the feedback that you need in order to make a management shift to kind of move away from whatever is the roadblock there. And finances, you know, um, if, if farmers knew that they weren't going to, you know, risk the farm um, with this new shift in, in farming practice, I think that would be huge. And so we need to figure out how to subsidize these farmers or give them that financial security um, over that initial transition period. And that transition period is really going to be dependent upon where they are in their head and the condition of their soil. If their soil is beat to hell, uh, they're gonna have a longer transition period and they're gonna struggle initially as they try to enrich their soil microbiome. Because in many, you know, we've killed the soil. Soil's dead, it is dirt, it's just dirt. So to try and make it soil again is gonna, it's a process. Shifting 
you know, what's going on in here is a process, you know, so we have to marry those two things together and then take out the risk, mm. the social risk and the financial risk. So there's a lot of ingredients with this. Um, and you know, what, you know, that there are pieces and parts that are working and different. I mean, I, I love what understanding ag and Ray and Gabe and, and Alan, that team, what they've been able to do, that's powerful. Um, what John Camp's been able to do, that's, that's powerful. Well, we need more of that happening in every region um, around the world. So um, I think we've got some parts and pieces that are working. Um, now we just need to, um, to start synergizing, start working together and, and try to recreate what's working in other parts of, of the world. Absolutely. We're getting some questions, Cindy, about Seth is, is sending one about finance regarding financial security, about the role of insurance, the insurance industry, particularly to do with crop insurance. Is there anything there? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, we've got NAP and um, th there's some other um, CSP type programs that can be helpful. Um, NRCS has got the EQIP programs. They can also be helpful. Those are cost share programs. Um, what we're trying to do is provide uh, case statements to NRCS to kind of change some of those fee schedules because in many places they're just um, inadequate uh, to provide the kind of security uh, that farmers need to move down there. You know, like, you know, we all know how important pollinators are. So putting hedgerows in, I think they pay you $2 a linear foot and it costs eight to put them in no one's going to go down that path unless they have more support to kind of uh, cover those initial costs. Um, here in California, we had a really great program, the Healthy Soils Initiative, that was put forward by California Department of Food and Agriculture. So just a really big shout out to Karen Ross, to Jenny Tucker and that group for what they were able to accomplish. They put $28 million out into the industry, into the hands of farmers and ranchers to make some transition on some of these climate smart farming practices, which are basically regenerative farming practices. But, you know, and then, you know, COVID hits. <laughs> and so that puts all that funding, you know, into question as to whether or not that program can continue. And, you know, they spent every dime, everything that they had, they put out into the, so it's, it's, a, it's a great program in that it, provide, it provided enough incentive to make farmers look at that and say, well, I think I can make that work. And it took out the financial risk that was associated with making the transition into that farming practice. So a lot of good was done and then COVID hit. And, and now that we've got this $57 billion deficit, um, it puts that program into jeopardy, which could be the exact program that can reverse this problem that we have with these kinds of pandemic outbreaks due to a lack of diversity and climate change. So you know, the exact program that we need, we're going to defund because we're too busy using that, those funds for all of these disasters, you know, that are happening with the pandemic and the forest fires and things like that. So yeah, we need to. Well, this, this is really critical. Um, actually, what you're saying, Cindy, because, and this is the part that's, that I get really concerned about, because I think all of us knew this threshold was coming, right? This tipping point that we were going to be up against a lot of shifts as climate change began to spin. Um, um, and that we had also designed a lot of systems that were truly Band-Aid-like and not really going after the heart of issues, whether that's healthcare, and you're talking about the debate of, you know, functional medicine versus, you know, mitigating symptoms, 
or doing, you know, segmented inputs to uh, inputs and outputs of a, you know, of a really uh, monetized uh, agricultural industry. That's very, uh, sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, text about questions. Um, the, um, I get concerned. Uh, and I think there's a lot of concern what you just said about um, not getting to the heart of the issue, but going into constant, you know, mitigation control mode, damage control, um, and not actually getting to the heart of the issues of what's wrong, including the, you know, the instability with our food distribution and food systems. I mean, at the heart of it, that's also what we really need to talk about too. And that is to do with local regional based food based systems. Um, and in a way, COVID's impact on the food system, just because of our international uh, clamping down, is having far more broader impacts than COVID itself in some respects, um, due to you know, not just the lack of food, but civil unrest, um, the other things that this instigates when people are you know, in poverty, lacking food, up against a pandemic, um, and borders are shut down, um, and food goes to waste. Um, I'm not sure that I have an answer here, and I think this is why, and really authentically, I sit with this one. I don't know what we do when the public wants and government needs to remedy certain issues that are indeed traumatic and um, needing band-aids quite quickly, but it keeps us, and it was already keeping us from getting to the heart of these issues, of why these systems are so incredibly unstable and will continue to be challenged and uh, maybe taken down in their brittleness as these chaotic events continue to occur. It's not just forest fires, it's not just a pandemic. Like these, this is, uh, I think this, un these unknowns in this chaos will, you know, kind of continue in my mind from what we know about the way things are shifting in the world. Yeah, clearly, uh, yeah, this, yeah, we have, more and bigger issues down the road. So we're gonna to have to be prepared. And, and we're not really doing that because we're scrambling uh, to, to try and deal with uh, you know, the, each problem as it comes. So we're constantly putting out the proverbial fire and not really addressing the core issue. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I don't know what else to say about that other than the fact that, you know, we need some real holistic strategic planning. Ah, well, you hit a key word for me that I think I, I'm, I'm very passionate about lately is strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is something, whether it's on a, a you know, bioregional scale, a national scale or international scale in that coordination, um, I think that is something that maybe regenerative ag need, is going to be breathing into more and more when it comes to um, we are understanding uh, more and more the, the systemic implications and impacts. And now it's time to move into a greater strategy session, in my mind, as to how, how to spread this and coordinate this. Now that we're having, I think, a lot of awareness more and more on the ground with public and where their food is coming from, that there is this orientation. Um, I want to get um, some questions here. I mean, this, this, I think in a way, maybe you and I just needed to say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just like, uh. 
it feels good, yeah, to be able to kind of talk about that. But clearly, you know, the, <laughs> we, 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 we've got some solutions out there. I mean, Will Harris has put an awful lot of food out into his local community while he's providing jobs, while he's sequestering carbon. And, you know, it's providing economic security, too, for his family. So, you know, he's got all of all of his family involved in that. That's, you know, another sign of a, a very healthy farming ecosystem is that, you know, the, the kids are coming back to the farm um, and they're excited about the opportunity to farm and to produce food, you know, in this in this kind of uh, regenerative type model. And that, that's exciting. You know, it's, it's shifting away from, you know, my parents are saying, get out of farming, you know, just get out of it. Um, you know, to, 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 to try and to, pre, you know, create this um, wonderful nourishing um, and, and supportive um, program where your kids feel very financially secure, um, you digging in and becoming part of the family farm. That's, that's longevity. That's, that's a true regenerative model. Absolutely. Um, Terry's asking what can be done to educate the general public to become consumers of what farmers produce. She says she teaches at a community college level. Um, and she says, my goal since um, the move to Oregon is to get regenerative ag maybe into a course that can be a GE requirement. Um, I'm working on some curriculum and have some modified uh, and have modified a class called Food, Society and Environment uh, from when I taught at Sierra College in California. Excellent. Well, that sounds like it's a it's a it's a great approach. Um, you know, providing those kinds of, of programs are great, and, and and maybe as a part of that course is to create a service learning component, where every student that you teach is also required to go out into the public and and make a, you know make a presentation about you know local food and regenerative farming practices and how important it is that they they vote with their food dollars. So every time people make a food purchase, they're basically supporting a particular form of agriculture. You know, so if you're, you're going to, to, to support that generic milk, you're supporting that form of conventional agriculture. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost hesitant because I know we have, you know, not a ton of time and I want to get to some of these other questions, but you said milk. And um, I think uh, it just comes up a lot lately for me with folks where, you know, they're very excited to see, you know, dairy being grass fed and um, it go, you know, I think there's, there's a collapse of what grass fed or organic or sustainable or regenerative is. Um, and I, I mean, I, I would just ask you how, how regenerative can the dairy industry be? Can it truly become regenerative? Oh. It absolutely can be, but um, I, I just want to make it clear that, you know, in that case, not all, all organic milk is regenerative. There is no doubt about that. So I just want to make that really, really clear. Um, you know, um, I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to get some hate mail. I can just feel it. Um, just feel we'll protect it. you. Uh, but, <laughs> Uh, you know, to be a truly regenerative system, it needs to be heavily based in grass. It needs to be a grass-based system. That's what makes that a carbon sink. You know, cattle on, on cement is not a regenerative system. The net emissions there, uh, you know, can never be offset um, to a high enough degree. You put those animals back on grass in a meaningful system um, and you treat your forages, you treat pasture like a crop, you can grow rocket fuel. You know, over the 15 years that we put our cows out on grass, we accumulated three 
85% soil organic matter. We went from a three to a six. And that's because we stacked practices. And it took us 15 years to get there. We changed the way we grazed while we put the cows out on grass. Um, we had to change our genetics to do that. Um, we also um, improved grazing. We, we, we have a, a, a pretty intensive uh, composting uh, process where we're doing some compost applications. Um, we're doing some no-till drill seeding with improved species and we're growing rocket fuel. So the feed that we grow for our cows to go out and graze is better than the corn silage that we could have grown on that ground and harvested and turned around and fed. So you can see that that's a very sustainable system. You know, you don't have to harvest the feed. There's no equipment cost, there's no fuel use, there's no labor associated with that. The cow is out harvesting her own grass and she's doing her thing. Um, so yeah, and this is a really big, I mean, there's lots of big economic um, issues that are going on right now in the organic dairy industry. We're losing really awesome dairy farmers left and right because we haven't righted that ship. Um, when organic went down the conventional pathway, um, it just ruined it uh, for a lot of farmers. And now it's the same kind of thing. Um, we're trying to produce all this organic milk on, you know, for the least amount of money. And it's gotten to the point where farmers can't cover their input costs. There's no parity um, with what they're getting paid for that organic milk and how much it costs for them to produce. And so we've gone down that same path um, that we've done. So we're gonna see bigger and bigger organic dairies and you know, their ability to graze you know, all of their dairy cows is very difficult. It's not um, easy for a, con you know, a conventionally minded dairyman to start grazing dairy cows. That's what uh, a friend of mine once said, you know, we, can, uh, we can teach a dairy cow how to graze in two weeks, but it'll take two years to teach the dairyman how to graze. So there is that problem. There's, you know, more head issues there that we need to address to really go down that paradigm. But yeah, can we make regenerative milk? We absolutely can. There's no doubt about it. Do we have a lot of that going on right now? No, we do not. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. Um, just double checking some. There's been a few questions that are flying by here. Nisha, oh, it's not a question. She's just saying she wants to see examples beyond Gabe Brown and Will. Real numbers, yeah. I mean, it, uh, I will. I mean, I, I don't know how to respond to that exactly because I feel like I know so many people that are doing extraordinary work that aren't necessarily a part of a, a data gathering scheme with a university or an institute. Or they are, you know, just with uh, like in the California uh, with CAF, you know, or with uh, CalCan. There are, we do have a ton of agricultural producers doing incredible work that are re regeneratively based. Sure. Well, absolutely. Um, if you go to our website and you look at our Mentor Farmer website, we've got several farmer case studies posted there. American Farmland Trust also has several wonderful case studies um, that they have also done full economic assessments. Um, so you can find some case work there if that's the kind of information that you're looking for. Um, in, the, um, in the scientific literature, we do need more economic assessments completed. There's no doubt about that. But I think the real where the Weber meets the road is you know, these farmers you know, know their numbers and if it's economical, they're gonna move it forward. And they're, you know, that's, you know, the, the, the Scott Parks of the world, the Paul Muller, Phil Fosters, I mean, they're, 
they're using these regenerative practices um, and they're successful farmers. Um, they're there every year building, growing, and you know, that, that should be you know, validation in and of itself, um, just the fact that they're going and, and growing. And well, they're putting their kids back into the operation. Yeah, it's interesting. She's saying open the books and show the numbers. You know, one thing I think that that is the paradigm shift that we're talking about here in some respects is also the question of the of the food system design, right? And so we talk about, you know, people immediately go scalability. What's the scalability? What's the I want to see that you're making a certain amount in order to know that this is viable. Well, holistic context is not about a perpetual growth in, in, from, you know, in numbers by any means. Um, in fact, it usually has to do with thriving and being socially resilient um, um, and um, having that interconnection with your community, with your family, having the ecosystem functions thriving, having your animal, the animal welfare being really quite high. Um, and that there's a, there's a high respect for all of the interdependent facets that are going on and you're making a good living. You aren't living in perpetual debt. Um, but, you know, when we talk about scalability, I think, you know, people immediately go, can we feed the world? Right. This is the question. Can can we with regenerative ag feed the world when we need uh, the fields of monocrops that that are currently, you know, providing grain for, you know, millions. Right. Um, what do you say to that kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, frankly, I think, you know, the only way we're going to be able to feed 10 billion is in that regenerative model paradigm. We can't continue to erode and degrade through our soil in pursuit of cheap food. Um, so we need to rethink, um, you know, just the, you know, is cheap food all that important? Um, and if it's not, then, you know, prove it, um, pay for, you know, that, that, that farming system that, you know, you, you see as ideal in the regenerative type paradigm, you know, pay for that. I, a lot of these folks that I know that are in this um, have product online. You can order it online. They're the ones that really did well throughout this whole uh, pandemic. Um, th they couldn't keep up with the supply because, you know, they, you know, the grocery stores were empty. That food system failed. Um, it was too brittle, as you put it, Aurora. There was just, you know, there, it, it was, it's too broken. Um, so any kind of shift um, is going to create devastation in that. Whereas these local farmers that are producing a product and trying to go direct, um, they had an opportunity to really grow and they did. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, pr production system you should be supporting then to try and help them become more economically viable. So the cheap food model means that you try to make food as cheaply as possible. And to do that, you have to erode through our resources. If we had to pay for the amount of soil that we were destroying in the process of making that cheap food, the amount of water that was being, you know, um, um, divide, we, we were creating poor water quality, poor air quality. Um, if we had to pay for those social services and the amount of uh, greenhouse gas that's being emitted, that food would get very, very expensive. But right now, we're not having to pay for, you know, the degradation of our ecological resources. And that's an unfortunate thing. Um, you know, there again, there, there is the policy. Yeah, this is, um, 
I think this is one of the perpetual uh, reframes and the paradigm shifts, right, is, is expanding the vision from the blinders we've had around what we expect food to cost and understanding that if those externalities were actually added into food costs, food costs would skyrocket. And in some ways, that is why going to a local grass-fed producer, let's say, is more expensive. Right. Um, those externalities are being put back into the food model and they go, well, we can't afford that. Um, what is there to be done about um, making that more financially viable um, right. is immediately where a lot of people go, which is a completely fair question. Good, good. Yeah, I think the true cost of food report was put out by the, um, what is the National Institutes of Health. I think that they put together a report through the USDA that was really quite informative. Um, I was just on a food forum that was um, that was uh, put on, and and a lot of these big issues were were talked about there. So yeah, I yeah I didn't know we were necessarily going to get into that, but no, there, no. Are, there are some really wonderful reports out there on the true cost of of cheap food. Yeah, no, it's it's just it's a part of the expansion of the dialogue that needs to occur, as well as what it what it costs our bodies to eat cheap food. I you know this I was listening to this man who is really well known for his, you know, his intellectual capacity, um, and he was, you know, he was talking about how most of the world is is not starving anymore, how we're able to feed so many folks. Um, but what he doesn't go into is the, you know, is the, the, the obesity levels, you, do the, the, you know, 50% of the population dealing with chronic health issues um, and what that is, does to a system, right? When you have that many people that are actually living with chronic illness because they aren't able to access whole, you know, unprocessed nourishing foods and medicine is starting to catch up to all the micronutrient deficiencies that we're actually dealing with, which has a huge immunological, you know, consequence, which is directly related to, you know, a pandemic, right? Like these are interconnecting issues at this point. Right. Um, and this is a birthright. Yeah. Uh, I, I think this is all really wonderful. I, I just wanted to kind of address this, this whole issue of economics and, and the caller that wanted us to open up the book. And, and I, I just thought of Danny Unruh, who is a, a local walnut grower. He, he's part of the Mennonite community and he's been a real true mentor farmer for many farmers um, in our region. You can find him on our website. There's a case statement uh, for him. This is his walnut orchard in April. And if, if you're a walnut farmer and your orchard looks like this, you're probably the talk of the coffee shop. Um, what's beautiful about this is that you know think about the ecological diversity here so we have this diverse cover crop that's growing and it's providing a whole host of habitat for all the beneficial organisms that you know are not only you know feeding on this but also providing you know all of the root exudates for all of the soil microbiome in the soil profile itself so this is a beautiful thing and we need to get all walnut farmers thinking this is a beautiful thing rather than that scorched earth um, approach that you know seems to be really popular right now. <laughs> the economic aspect, I mean, uh, Danny is a conventional farmer. He's not organic, but he understands the economics of this system. What's happening here is these mustard plants are really eradicating his nematode issue. So he has no nematode spray that he needs to apply here. That's a cost savings. Um, you know, it's it's not. It's not it's not necessarily because of you know the ecological value here. He's doing it because it makes economic sense. Um, this cover crop is providing the diversity that he needs in order to control nematodes and other pests. 
And, and, and the other fact is, is that it's also pumping a lot of nitrogen into the soil profile. And so he has a lot lower nitrogen inputs. His cost is about $800 per acre. And you can call him up and ask him about that number. It's true. And that is um, a very low input cost. And so his return on his investment is sizable. So his net profit is much higher in this regenerative system. It's not organic, it's regenerative. Um, in, in this system than he would have if he was, you know, heavy geochemical input. Um, and we are looking at this. We've got some studies that we're trying to do in terms of comparing Danny, you know, with some of his, his more conventional type neighbors to look at the economics, to look at the pest loads, to look at the quality of the nuts, the yield, and that type of thing. So his yields are, are not as high as his geochemical neighbors, but his net profit is significantly higher. And isn't that what it's really about? It's about returning a highest, you know, the net profit per acre um, that he possibly can. And he does it, um, you know, using these uh, very extensive polyculture cover crops. So this is interesting because, I mean, there's a, there's, the ROI is higher, um, but you also have, you know, the holistic perspective of what, what we've been talking about, whether it's, um, you know, uh, the holistic perspective that comes from uh, a regenerative production, which is the sociological, psychological, like all of these things are being met within the shift of, of practices. Like Gabe Brown always just goes, it's just common sense, you know, and um, <laughs> it really meets all these other levels. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes sense. <laughs> it just makes sense. And you're like, it makes sense once your blinders come off and then you can see it. But until you can see it, you're going, no, I can't. I can't possibly. I need the additives. I need to put it in there. You got it. You don't know what you don't know until you know it. And that yeah. is that's the truth. That's yeah. the truth of it. Yeah. No, so that's we wanna, yeah, we don't want to criticize people and, and we realize that, you know, I mean, I get a lot of, of, of criticisms and I know that that's coming from people who are asking the right questions, who are just at that initial step of the paradigm shift. You got to ask those questions in order to kind of get on board, um, to kind of move down that path. So we need to be patient with Usually all of that. So. Mutually so. I think that's and that's some some of the you know the neurocognitive flexibility we talk about when you know being comfortable with the idea that not only is you know you don't know what you don't know right these unknown unknowns and that you're going to exist there and that we want to move a bit towards confidence and knowing but that being in that landscape can actually be highly creative highly fruitful highly expansive and get you out of the situation you're currently in but when you're living in debt when you have that survival. Uh, ramped up and then you're being pressured socially um, and that you may lose that support structure. It, there's a lot of challenges to this. Nesha is asking and it, a few times here, and I'm sorry I didn't get to it sooner, you know, what, what do you need most in order to, to have this spread and thrive? I think she's probably asking about the center, but I'm not exactly sure. Well, for the center, it's, it's yeah, well, um, I want to get to the point where we've institutionalized the center so that, you know, we're not always out trying to chase money. It, that is a, a full-time gig that just really gets old when there's just so much work to do. So it's that. Um, we're, we're um, you know, out, um, you know, trying to, to bring in the funding in order to institutionalize. And really what we focus our funding on is staffing. So, you know, right now I want to hire somebody specific to the educational program. Um, I, I really would like to get someone in, in ag education who can really understand how important it is that, you know, these concepts need to be relayed in a way that's very relatable. 
and very easy to understand, but yet, you know, completely science-based. So, you know, that I'd like to be able to bring somebody on to do specifically that function so we can get the certification program up and going, get the online masters going and, um, you know, continue to recruit and uh, provide support to our mentor farmers who are also providing support to our educational programming and that type of thing. Um, I want to be able to hire a team of postdocs that are going to help us implement the farmer to farmer network um, in each of the cropping species. Um, so, you know, we could create what we've done in veg, um, you know, with that group of farmers, we could do the same thing in orchard systems. Um, we are currently um, looking for funding to launch a, a very large regenerative almond project, which has the potential, you know, within the next five years to transition 27,000 acres. But, you know, that could snowball. The ripple effect to that could be, uh, you know, the, a million acres of almonds if, if, if it, you know, appeared to be economically viable. There's no reason why other almond farmers wouldn't jump on board with that. Um, the almond industry is pretty concentrated kind of in this Central Valley area. Um, we've got 125 producers in a co-op that we've worked together to develop a CIG grant. Um, but, you know, those competitive funds are competitive and, you know, they continue to um, be very difficult to get. We could, you know, with foundation funding or outside private in donations, we could really make that hum and, and create that, you know, create a hub for regenerative almonds do the same thing on regenerative rangeland. I mean, we could bring mm. in a colleague, Richard Teague, and, um, you know, Peter Bick, and, and really get that humming so that we create that farmer-to-farmer -farmer network uh, that we take row crop the same way. Yeah, um, it's, it's staffing. Um, and, you know, it's ramping up with the right people to make these programs happen. And then what, what we've done in that process is to create a roadmap for other places around the globe. I mean, we're partnering with some folks in Africa through Tim LaSalle's contacts. We're partnering with David Johnson in New Mexico State University. Uh, we've got colleagues at Oregon State with Hannah Gosnell. I mean, so I, I think what we need to do is create this model and show, and, and show how it can be done in other parts of the world. It just needs to happen. It's super interesting what you're saying, and it's uh, because we have so many phenomenal teachers on the ground. We do. Uh, yeah, we, Rancher to Rancher was something I was a part of for a bit with Kent Reeves and Richard King and Ariel Greenwood. And there was, that was it, was standing, was going to different ranches and standing around together. And what were we looking at? And what was, you know, a marine carbon project would show up. And, um, you know, th that was where, uh, and the RCDs would join us. And there was, you know, there, there were soil scientists that would come in, but it was a really a cross-pollinating experience of exploring not just the science of what was happening in the in the lab, but what was the land looking like? How could we read the land? What was it telling us? Um, and then sitting around a table together at the end of the day and game planning, how would that shift happen for that rancher? And so you had all of our minds and hearts sitting there going, how can we problems? I didn't even, I just putting this together, but that was what was so electric for me about this. And I'm hearing you now. Yeah. It is staffing. It is getting these circle ups in, in the current, situation where we're actually in where we're all round tabling this together um and and put and moving it outside the realm also of you know and 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 i understand we all need to make livings here but but workshops that are that are very pricey in for people who are already living in you know in a survival mode right and i've always had that where i've just been like we just open the door for folks and get everybody in here now like find a way to fund this outside of the realm of 
that model. And that's right. always been an issue for me. Exactly. Open source it. Make it easy yeah. to get. Make it easy access. Make it very science deep. Make it very supportive, peer review, you know, peer to peer. I'm yeah. supportive, you know, so, um, yeah, and, and give them effective demonstrations. You know, we've got a 15-year regenerative dairy um, project going on on the campus university farm that is economically viable, it's ecologically viable, it's animal welfare approved. I mean, so that's the kind of stuff that we need to elevate and use that platform to bring other farmers in and say, okay, this is how it looks, this is how it feels, this is how it smells, this is how it works. You mm. know, these are the numbers. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, that farmers appreciate. Um, yeah. you know, they, they do appreciate that. This is really exciting. I mean, this goes back to what's been kind of pumping through me lately, which is strategy, right? Mm -hmm. This strategy of this kind of network, of this type of implementation and exploration together, this is where we're at as a community, which is enthralling. Um, Cindy, I know we're at time. Uh, Seth has asked a few times and a few other people have asked also about your students. They, they wanna know what, what is your typical, who are your, your typical students? I know you have undergrad and grad. Are they producers, environmentalists, climate activists? What are all, all of the above, and they come from all across uh, campus, um, but uh, primarily they're from um, ag, um, in the College of Agriculture, so a lot of them are crops and horse, land resource management, ag business, or animal science, or ag education type majors by and large. I do get some students that come in um, from um, environmental sciences. That's probably the, the biggest influx I have from, from um, geography and from environmental science. Um, and yeah, the, the, uh, the master's students had primarily been local farmers. Um, I've got a local um, walnut grower. Um, I've got a local almond producer, rice grower. Um, um, yeah, it, that's the fun part for me is to kind of see the local farming community respond to that and say, oh yeah, you know, I really want to learn more about that. And, and the beauty is that, you know, we can coordinate an on-farm research project. And, and that's good for a couple of things. One, um, it provides you the excuse in the community to be doing weird things on your farm because it's research, right? It's research. And, and you can kind of get your foot wet and try on these things and kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work before you can kind of expand that to the rest of your farm. And the grants that we provide then allow them the economic um, you know, um, insurance policy um, against failure, you know, if, if you're just changing that paradigm. So it provides you the economic security that you need. Um, so yeah, and it works out pretty well. We've got, um, you know, several of them that are um, really exciting projects to participate in. Uh, there's, there's no community out there that is, um, I, I guess, more intense and um, receptive, bright, um, than our farming community and our ranchers. I, I, I know they're my people. I love working with them. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of excited about the direction that the center has taken. I love this. I love the bridges you're building, Cindy. I so admire it and respect it. And I really do understand the heat that, that goes with both of these communities, all of the communities really, um, that you're talking about. Um, but I, I do think there is uh, an immense um, ennobling facet that comes with holding to that type of integrity and vision um, and really being kind about the fact that everybody's spinning in a bit of chaos as we shift a lot of systems um, from that psycho-spiritual realm, the sociological, how our communities are, to how we disseminate and even interpret science and do science, do science well. 
um, and uh, you know, thin out and purify, so to speak, our funding sources and policy and economics. Those really those drivers. Um, it's a really complicated mess, and um, I love seeing what you're doing. It's incredibly inspiring for me and for a lot of our community today. They have a wonderful comments. Well, thank you, and thanks for all the work that you folks do. I'm really impressed with that. And uh, yeah, let's just kind of keep pushing. <laughs> Absolutely, let's keep strategizing. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's strategize. Very good. Well, Aurora, I really do appreciate the time today. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Absolutely, for me as well. Incredibly nourishing. Thank you, Cindy. Great. Thank you. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much.